0: Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins and I am joined by my co hosts, Eddie Webb. Hello. And Dixie. If you really yes. want to know yes. what I want in a guy, <laughs> well, I'm looking for a dream on a mean machine with hell in his eyes.
1: I want a devil in skin, title leather. He's gonna be wild as the wind. What is happening?
2: I'll be holding on
1: tight tight to To a a cool rider.
2: (laughs) Audience, I also have no idea what's happening right now, so you're not alone in this.
1: (laughs) If it's cool enough, he can burn me through and through.
2: (laughs)
0: Which still sounds like a horrible venereal disease.
1: Uh, we are singing Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, major song from the seminal movie Grease Two.
2: Seminal. Uh, I don't believe, I don't uh, believe been, the seminal part, yeah, but okay. Yeah, se- seminal has been <laughs> redefined
0: for this episode. I think.
1: When, uh, when uh, she is explaining to the nerdy British man that she will only date a cool guy with a motorcycle.
0: Yeah. If it takes okay. forever, then she'll wait forever.
1: Yeah,
2: because she wants a writer that's cool. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of uh, complex character developments happening here.
0: Well, uh, it's complex in, in that it's an evolution from Greece One, where they were all about cars.
1: <laughs> it is, however, the same story in that they change themselves to make the other person like them. Yeah. Okay. Although this one ends at a luau, not a fair, a rock-a-hula luau. Oh, I <laughs> that so
2: is much better. better.
1: And the uh, the uh, nerdy British man who has since, oh, who is the same guy that plays Rex Manning in uh, Empire Records, by the way. Okay. Um, he has learned how to ride a motorcycle, and he jumps over something, and they all think he's dead, and it's mm. terrible. But then he comes back for the rock of Hula Lua and you know everything's great.
0: Yeah, he does a sort of evil Knievel thing, and um, spoilers, and, I guess. Yeah, well, by it's, every... it's Greece too. It's, it's 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 spoiled by existing, <laughs> like.
1: Um, <laughs> Uh, I think that, yeah, he he uh, he writes people's term papers and homework for money to buy the motorcycle.
0: Yes. <laughs> it, it never quite establishes where Goose and Lewis and the other, I guess, modern T-Birds get the money from to pay him enough to purchase a rocking motorcycle. But somehow he manages it. And you know what? I think of musicals we have mentioned in the course of our long Pathcast uh Grease 2 may have appear, It must be in the top three for number of appearances, if not quality.
1: I fucking love Grease 2. It's so stupid. I mean, if it, for what it's worth, if anybody actually goes to watch Grease 2, if you're talking about it so much, there is some real gross stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, there is some, there is some, you know, played for laughs, non-consensual shit. Uh, so don't, don't watch it if you're not okay with any of that. But it's a bad movie. And Michelle Pfeiffer, from what I understand, who this day, will not talk about it.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I think that she has the same thing with that movie that uh, the guy that played Rocky in Rocky Horror Head, where he was just like, "I, I, I'm I, this, this, this ruined my life." Granted, it didn't ruin her life. She's very famous, but she will not talk about it.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much of that she can credit to Grease Two, um, but I, I can't, I can't recall what kind of a hit or flop Grease Two was. But anyway, this episode isn't to do with Grease Two. I'm sure everyone well, listening has been enthralled by this. But it to is, be fair, there's, there's
2: one piece of this that actually I did care about, and I was looking oh. up while you were talking about it. Apparently a motorcycle in 1960 costs around
1: $800 to $1,000. Also, he did buy like a used crappy motorcycle, and then he fixed it up, if you remember correctly.
2: Yeah, but I don't think that's how it
0: works, really. I think you can fix a used crappy motorcycle up to a certain degree, but he pretty much vaulted the Grand Canyon. Uh, at, at One of its wider points. I mean, it's easy to say you've vaulted the Grand Canyon, and if you're at a point where you can literally just hop over,
2: you know, with the right edges and enough enhancement, you could do anything.
0: Well, <laughs> that, that's where I've been going wrong in my life. I think I, I've your been, character li- build is crap. <laughs> yeah, I've been leaning too heavily on my complications and conditioners. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it was. It was not a good movie. It's got like a 36 on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh,
0: like, oh, that's unfair! It's worth at least six, <laughs> that, that's, it's worth at least sixty percent. Yes, if you, <laughs> I think you could take out the "Let's do it for our country," the red way yeah, and the blue. That is the
1: worst thing in that
0: whole movie. Um, but you've got hits like "Cool Rider," "Reproduction," um, "Where Does the pollen Go," <laughs> <laughs> but again. Five minutes in, we aren't here to talk about Grease 2. Uh, I, I unfortunately opened this lament <laughs> configuration box of musicals.
1: However, we are here to talk about something else that is a substance that can be found on metal.
2: I was
0: about to say scars? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, you might get those after watching Grease too. But. And and to be honest,
0: Dixie, if your if your metal is covered with dead man's rust, um, I'm guessing we've identified the serial tra- killer of East Coast America. <laughs> I
1: was just trying to transition from grease to rust. I'm so sorry. I was doing my best here. <laughs> that was
2: a for effort. Yeah, it was. If you don't I've keep done. your
1: cast iron pan greased, it'll rust. I, I, it, I'm I'm trying. I'm yeah. trying, y'all. Yeah.
2: You're, you're dead. I band.
1: I'm taking the dead man part out of it. You
2: what terrible dead man people! Did you
0: take it from? <laughs> um, anyway, Dead Man's Rust is the new mega campaign for Scarred Lands. It's going to be on Kickstarter. Uh, well, by this time next week, without a doubt. And yeah, it's the new uh, Kickstarter by Onyx Path Publishing for the very exciting Scarred Lands campaign setting, which appears to have drawn a lot more attention than the last few months. I think it's in part due to the amount of content we're putting out for it, both in videos, in podcasts, oh, as well as, of course, books. Lots of fun stuff with Frostlands of Fenrilic, And a lot of credit there uh, goes to the ever-wonderful Travis Legg, who we interviewed mm-hmm. not that long ago. And because well, while he may be the logical choice for interview subject for this episode, because we interviewed him not that long ago, we decided to go further afield, and we decided to interview some of the writers on Dead Man's Rust instead. And so, uh, the interviewees for this particular episode are Jessica Ross and Hiromi Kota, uh, two fantastic minds, incredibly creative writers who contributed uh, substantial sections to the Dead Man's Rust mega-campaign. And yeah, we will be delving into what Dead Man's Rust contains, and hopefully it will appeal to you whether you're a Dungeons & Dragons player or not.
1: Also, we're going to be playing it soon.
0: That's very true. And I will be running it as well for Red Moon Roleplaying. What? Yeah, well, not not the same bit, uh, hopefully. I mean, I'm running uh, my first session the night before we play our session with Travis. So it would be. I'll check with Travis. I'll make sure I'm not running the same arc of the campaign for Red Moon Roleplaying and then turn up as a player and think, hang on, I just been through this. (laughs) But, and, you
1: could uh, you you can play a hollow legionnaire that has deja vu.
0: Yeah. Just uh, terrible deja vu. So hollowed out because I've been through this before. Uh <laughs> I think uh unfortunately because I've spent so much time in the world of they came from I can no longer separate meta gaming from actual gaming. <laughs> so yeah, I would just be there saying, I think you'll find Travis that uh, the <laughs> The number of hit points that this Asafi has is 23, not 24. Oh, that blow should have killed him.
1: Hang on, hang on. That's a fake rock. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, wait a minute, everyone. That's not a chest. That's a mimic.
1: <laughs> I, I like the idea that your own game that you created and conceptualized has ruined you for every other game.
0: <laughs> in, in You're like, room. I did it to myself. Uh, I would say working on Vampire has ruined it for me. No, no, that's not true. Um, but but, that, but that's it's an interesting subject we'll have to cover one day. Uh, how working on these games does affect the way we play them uh, in a in positive and negative ways because when I think of some games like Lands, whenever I play it, it gives me a bit of a thrill. Uh, I really enjoyed the setting. I love what people bring to it. There are other games I play, sometimes with Vampire, because I've been working on it for so long. If I've run it, if well, when I run it, I always have that game developer mind. Uh, now, as a storyteller, I find it very difficult to disassociate. So, That'll be a subject for another day, maybe.
2: Or except we've already talked about in episode 129 when you're unavailable. Yeah, I wasn't there, so
0: we've got to do it again. Yeah, we
2: we, we
1: literally had that conversation.
2: <laughs> Not with me. That's true. No, that's true.
0: Okay, so Not how about you. I record an episode all by myself?
1: And <laughs> Only if you don't blink the whole time you're recording it.
0: I I will do that, and you'll just have to take my word for it. Nope, nope,
1: I I require you to film yourself while
3: you're (laughs) recording it.
0: I think I could do it, but I think the ocular damage wouldn't be worth the little amount of money I get for recording the Onyx Pathcast being... We get money? Exactly. (laughs) Um, but you know, uh, I have a uh, PayPal, so if people go over to my website and particularly want to see my bur- me burn out my optic nerves uh, for the sake of <laughs> an onyx guard episode, I'll I'll take your money. We've got the NHS over here; I can get them replaced for free.
1: Also, just to clarify, we get paid a monthly amount, and this is part of it. In case yeah. anybody out there thinks that Rich is not paying us for our
0: labor, yeah. thanks, Rich. We we do thanks, appreciate Rich. it. We do- don't fire us. You guys get paid.
1: <laughs> oh, um, we should probably just cut to the interview.
0: Yeah, yeah, good, good point. Oh, and once again, I need to stow you away somewhere safe. Now that that's become part of the ritual, hasn't it? Uh, Am I so, going behind the portrait again? No, no, no. I've uh, oh, okay. brought in some new uh, furniture and accoutrements to uh, drop <laughs> you both into. Eddie, for instance, gets to uh, gets locked in the chest, which is actually a mimic.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 oh uh, wait, has got my leg. It's got my leg. Oh my God! It's got my leg. Come on. Now I will say it's
0: warmer than the average treasure chest, uh, but it's also wetter. And and Dixie, mm-hmm. hmm, a different place for you to go. There's a haunted tree in the in the sort of front yard of our big mansion. Uh-huh. and it's split down the middle they yeah. say they say that that's where it was struck by lightning once but others the villagers especially say that that's where the ghouls emerge at night so right. you can tuck yourself away in there and tell me what you find
1: okay okay awesome i am going to just go out the front door and i will talk to you a little bit later when
0: I okay out. now over to the interview And we're back. It's just me conducting this interview, and I am here with my sensational guests. I am here with the always wonderful Hiromi Kota. Hello. And the new to me, Jessica
3: Mm -hmm. Ross. Hi.
0: Hello. Hello. Hello, both of you. Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. It's lovely to have you here. And you are here, as we mentioned in the introduction, myself, Eddie, and Dixie. We were talking a little about the Scarred Lands, Dead Man's Rust mega-campaign uh, for which both of you are contributing authors. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Well, I'd certainly hope that was correct, otherwise I'd, <laughs> wonder... <laughs> I'd wonder why I sent you these invitations. I'm clearly feeling unsure of myself tonight. I'm not trying to clearly. Now... Uh, we've we've spent a few episodes in recent months speaking about Scardlands. It's an interesting setting. Uh, I've been making YouTube videos about it as well, and it seems that there's a lot of renewed interest regarding the Scarred Lands campaign setting. I And you can see all kinds of videos about it all over YouTube and Twitch. Uh, there's lots of products coming out on the Slurician Vaults, which is the community content program. And I'm reading reviews of Scarlands too. So here's hoping that kind of means a bit of a renaissance for the Scarred Lands. But then we come to Dead Man's Rust. And this is since, well, the Creature Collection. Our first Scarred lands Kickstarter in a while, and I wanted to ask the both of you what your what you contributed to this uh, to this big campaign book. So um, let's start with you, Hiromi. What was your what was your part in this?
4: I did a little bit with the uh, Rose Clan, as uh, one of the many groups of folks in the uh, Broadreach. yes, or, or, or Hornsaw if you're Hornsaw, particularly yes. Titanic as well as handling some of the uh, cults of Mormo uh, like the uh, cult of the Serpent Ascendants and the uh, uh, Torn Womb. I also had a decent chunk of uh, the defense of the uh, the Citadel. (laughs) Interesting things happen uh, with the Citadel and I contributed uh, a lot of the uh, sort of new and revised lore of the Citadel uh and for folks uh who are unfamiliar with the setting basically the citadel is a town or a large city that's entirely almost entirely populated by non-human and even non-biological uh uh people uh so first it was the hollow knights and now um mostly the hollow legionnaires um mm-hmm. both of which are uh Playable races that are basically suits filled with uh, intelligent ener- intelligent energy, so like living suits of armor. If you've uh, watched or read uh, Full Metal Alchemist, uh, you you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And uh, of of that, um, so Dead Man's Rust is a is obviously a large campaign for some people. It's going to be the their introduction. To the scarred land setting so you mentioned you wrote the Rose clan um, what are clans in the scarred lands context because I think a lot of our listeners are going to associate clans primarily with vampire
4: in the in this case clans are uh, much much smaller less uh, broadly reaching uh, so they are essentially villages between like a hundred and two thousand people within uh, the Broadreach forest um and so they're they're largely elves and not not elves in like sort of the more uh, Tolkien-esque. less less cities more trees and more anger
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah, i'm given to understand that a lot of the elves in the broadreach forest um, now that it is of course the hornsaw uh, forest at least to some uh, gave themselves over to the woodlands to t- help try and preserve it from Mormo's corruption. Um, do the mm-hmm. different clans kind of fall on a different scale depending on how involved they got in that grand action? And, and where does the Rose clan sit with with
4: that great sacrifice? Were they party to it? Basically all of the, uh, the clans, uh, even if they didn't have a direct role, in um the destruction of mormo Uh, they're very very much against uh continued corruption of the forest uh and um have sort of pushed back and reclaimed uh what they can um which which often means that they are um xenophobic (laughs) Mm-hmm. uh because they 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 know that they can trust themselves but outsiders are how mormo got a foothold in the first place and uh a large number of mormo's followers outside of titan spawn um so like the uh snake like asathi and the um uh horse like sutak or ironbred uh so like outside of them the largest demographic the the largest uh, species in the world that uh, Mormo's followers came from were humans so I mean it it's racism but um, it's it's racism born of very recent trauma hmm so like it's
0: so it's similar to how a a people, May come to resent a neighboring nation, for instance, because they're just coming off the heels of a war with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of inbuilt, I guess, paranoia into a setting like that because they're just waiting for the uh, sparks to catch again.
4: Um, yeah, and the, the followers of Mormo uh, are still very much around. Like, Mormo's mm-hmm. dead and uh, I, I would say buried, but she's been torn into like hundreds of pieces. So they, they, each individual piece may or may not be buried uh but uh the cult of the serpent Ascendants, the torn womb um I'm blanking on the third major cult of marmo because I didn't write them <laughs> <laughs> um but like they're they're still very much active uh and they're still uh very much dedicated to either bringing uh her back from the dead or f- for or towards um uh, wiping out the world's political structures and replacing them with uh, a civilization that serves to sort of glorify her memory. So there's there's a whole lot of uh, not not great stuff happening, um, and everyone who's been traumatized or whose uh, uh, ancestors have been traumatized uh, through the Titan War, and specifically um, with um, uh, followers of Mormo, that that trauma is still super raw. Mm.
0: And uh, how about you, Jessica? What's your uh, what's been your contribution to this book?
3: I did a lot more towards the beginning of the book, so I did some work on plot hooks to get people into the campaign, um, and with options for starting out in Chapter One, which is in Leone, starting with the Night of Chronicles. Um, or starting out in various other places, if people want to start this campaign from other places where they are already running Scarlands campaigns, mm-hmm. um, and then I did a lot in Chapter One, set in Leone during the a, a large festival in Leone called the Night of Chronicles. Um, I think that was where the bulk of my writing went, and then I did a little bit in the for the Broadreach Dwarf Village that was in. Um, very close to the the elf clans. And then I also did one of the the elf clans, the Deer clan.
0: And uh, Chapter 1, I've actually got up in front of me, The Twilight of the Bard, as it's called. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps for the listeners, you could explain, uh, to the best of your recollection, how this grand campaign starts. Uh, We're kind of ideally placed as the writer of Chapter 1, maybe to... uh, to say, how do adventurers first get their hooks into this story?
3: Um, well, it basically starts at this, uh, like I said, the Night of Chronicles is this like grand festival that people can attend. And the idea is that adventurers will um, attend it and participate in, in some way. Uh, but at the end of the Night of Chronicles, they meet Tridoki, a dwarf who wants to return to his home in Broadreach in Broadreach Horizon. Um, he hasn't been there in a long time, and actually has is dealing with a lot of guilt because he wasn't he was alive when the necromancers from Glivid Hotel came and captured all of the dwarfs from Broadreach Horizon, but wasn't there. Um, he's an old and uh, very experienced adventurer who wants to retire to his original home and doesn't want to travel there alone so he hires adventurers to take him there and um, where a lot of the uh sort of intrigue and and mystery and, and problem solving starts is really once you arrive in broad reach um but that first chapter gets you to um gets you to meet Dredoki and and kind of figure out what's going on with him
0: yeah i um I know some people, especially when it comes to video games, get a bit sniffy about escort missions. But I think (laughs) there's, uh, but there's a, they really serve in role playing games as an excellent introduction to to a world, and also they apply to parties of any alignment. Mm-hmm. Because whether you're doing it for altruistic reasons or whether you're just purely mercenary or inquisitive and wanting to know what's happened uh, in broad reach you you will i guess take take the coin if necessary and and go on that journey uh, so. Something has, as you say, the necromancers uh, did something quite foul when it came to the dwarves of Broadreach Horizon. Uh, Can you go into that at all? What became Um, of the dwarves of the Broadreach?
3: Sure. Uh, After, so the the necromancers of Glyvodotel basically captured all of the dwarves. um, And this is around the same time that the elves of Broadreach Horizon um, merged themselves with the forest. And after a very, very long time in captivity, um, eventually the dwarves were able to escape and have resettled. So when adventurers in this campaign get to Broadreach Horizon, um, the dwarf village especially is sort of a, a new budding settlement because mm. a lot of like many of the dwarves who are there were alive in captivity in Glavid Hotel and are cut, kind of trying to like recapture and recreate some of their older customs that they had before being in captivity for so long um, while also trying to marry that to to brand new customs. Um, so there's a lot of sort of politics going on between like them and a lot of the local elf clans and them and a lot of the the travelers and things like that and people who are trying to settle in the area and they're trying to figure out the best way just to like make this village run and figure out where they want to go from here now that they are free again and now that they're able to to have this this home for themselves once again.
0: So yeah it's a bit about uh in this campaign about reclaiming ancient homelands that have been mm-hmm. taken from you in in this case by necromancers and other foul creatures. Um, but also the I guess the the peoples of the Hornsaw. The Broadreach Forest, who once may well have lived in some kind of harmony, aren't as comfortable with each other anymore. I assume there is some there is some friction there between the dwarves who were captured, some of them enslaved, of course, lots of them killed by the necromancers, and the elves who some dwarves may well have seen as abandoning them.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, it's not a, it isn't the harmonious civilization that one could argue it was. Several years before. Uh, so um, I, I put to both of you: What is the overarching plot of uh, Dead Man's Rust? What is the party set upon achieving after they have escorted uh, Drakoki Bronzeleaf uh, all the way to through to the Broadreach Horizon? Is there an end game that is established early?
4: I don't know. If there's an end an end game that's established early, but there's certainly uh, a problem uh, that is that reaches much further than the players have the ability to sort of interact with directly. So at least initially, I mean, I guess if you're asking, uh, I don't have to be quite as coy because <laughs> if if I give if I spoil things, then you can just Edit it out. <laughs>
0: uh, well, okay. So, if there's any upcoming uh, players of this campaign, do do be aware there may be spoilers for the next sixty seconds or so. But GMs, uh, you've got full free reign.
4: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the the upshot is that the uh, the title the title of the uh, book uh, Dead Man's Rust refers to Legionnaire's Rust, which is a disease that only affects um, the uh, previously mentioned uh, hollow knights and hollow legionnaires, uh, and because uh, both of those both of those peoples uh, are non biological, they have not had to deal with uh, diseases for their entire existence. So they they don't believe that they're a problem, and they take absolutely no precautions. And we wrote this before the pandemic. I fucking <laughs> swear but holy shit
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
4: uh yeah. and a- as it turns out uh if if you leave a pandemic alone and you don't do anything about it bad shit happens uh and that's that's a big driving factor uh for the plot uh, and so as it turns out uh, uh necromancers particularly those in uh Tell, uh are uh responsible for this happening and the the PCs will want to uh deal with the source as well as uh try to find a cure and that drives like probably 80% of the book and the additional 20% is a whole bunch of other fun stuff that you get to do just because you're in um uh gelspot
0: yeah, the, the the dead man's rust of the title is certainly a, a rather pernicious uh, infection that uh, could well spell uh, ill tidings for the region if brave adventurers don't do something to stop it before it's too late. But I absolutely see what you mean about the, uh, I guess, the prescience of writing something like this. We, I was developing Contagion Chronicle. And uh, never before was there a more ill-timed release <laughs> uh, <laughs> than the Chronicles of Darkness crossover book, where every single setting handles uh, how a different city or region deals with a uh, pandemic, or admittedly of supernatural proportions. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think many people took exception, but it was something we were aware of when we released it. We thought. Uh, are people going to be upset by this? But uh, I mean, luckily we didn't go into anything that felt like COVID, mm. um, and De- and Dead Man's Rust certainly doesn't feel like COVID. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I see, I see your pain there. Um, so let's talk about Scarred Lands a little more broadly. Because uh, both of you are pretty damn familiar with the setting, as far as I'm aware. And uh, Jessica, what what introduced you to the Scarred setting? And in fact, what introduced you to Dungeons & Dragons?
3: Um, Let's see. I think what introduced me to Dungeons & Dragons was like a club day on campus when I was an undergrad. um, About 10 years ago or so. And I went and tried it out and actually didn't like it and didn't try it again for like six or seven years. Oh, no. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, I made some friends after I moved up to Washington after grad school and got into d and that way and got into Scarred Lands uh, sometime after that, after I wrote uh, my first and adventure, um, someone was looking for Scarred lands writers, and uh, and this was Travis, and basically explained Scarred lands as D D but metal.
0: Yep, that, that's <laughs> how he sells them. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> that's accurate. Um,
3: yeah, and that hooked me, and so I uh ran a couple of campaigns just to get a feel for it while writing um, my adventure that's in Chase Across Galsped, and. Yeah, that's, that's how I got introduced to both.
0: <laughs> and, uh, well, maybe you could unpack for the listeners what Travis means, if you dare enter his mind, by uh, <laughs> D&D but metal. How do you think Scarred Lands feels like this uh, this heavy metal setting?
3: Ooh, what a question. Um, it's definitely... Everything is a lot heavier in Scarred Lands. Um darker heavier just more extreme it feels like mm. if that makes sense i yeah. i won't yeah. pretend to know that that's like what travis's thoughts are and to try to get into his brain about it but that's kind of how it struck me
0: yeah i there's definitely an element uh, of horror that permeates scarred lands but uh, i I completely see what you mean when you talk about it being heavier it's rare for a d and d setting to have an environment that is so alive. Usually yes. you are you know you're you're in one merry old England style setting or another <laughs> and uh, you go out to some ruins or a dungeon i know i'm a bit generalizing but you do that and the world around you has far less impact on your character than the monsters you're fighting or the mystery you're solving but in Scarred Lands you're, you're right it, for me I agree that it, it feels heavy, it feels more oppressive because you are living in a battlefield or living on a battlefield, a, a global battlefield where gods and titans warred not that long ago within mm-hmm. living memory of some creatures and the scars as per the name are still left there. Uh, some cases, such as the location for Dead Man's Rust with the or Forest where Mormo was ripped to pieces and her gore and viscera went about twisting and corrupting the land itself and a lot of the people that lived there. So, yeah, no, I can see that. And, and it. I guess it's a bit of a... Um, Loaded question, but is it a setting you enjoy writing? And when I say that, I mean, there are some settings that writers can just kind of ease into and, and just write freely without much, I guess, without having to invest heavily. And there are others people love to gravitate towards, others people have to do research on before they get into. So, But first and foremost, do you enjoy it?
3: I do enjoy it. I think I, I enjoy specifically a lot of the the work that I've done with Leonie, because um, I think that at this point is where I spent the most of my time in Scarlands writing. Um, but yes, I do definitely enjoy it.
0: Well, that's always good to know. Uh, don't <laughs> worry, you weren't going to get thrown off the podcast if you said, no, I absolutely hate the <laughs> or, although I admit at this point, uh, 20-something minutes into our interview, it would have been a, a strange turn to take. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what, about, what about you, Hiromi? What was your introduction to Scarred Lands and D&D?
4: So, I guess I'm going to date myself heavily, uh, but <laughs> uh, my introduction to D&D uh, was, I want to say, 84, um, when uh, my uncle uh, really wanted to get um, both me and my cousin into D and D to sort of like show off this, uh, cool game that I'd been playing for a while. And, um, it, it was really sort of a, um, transformative experience, uh, because like it was the first sort of, uh, game of the mind that I played. Uh, and, uh, I mean, aside from like, uh, pretend and tag and cops and robbers and whatever, whatever I happen to be playing as a child. Uh, And so it sort of fit right into that, but it was not an ad hoc game that Mm. we just sort of make, like kids make rules and uh, patterns, but like an actual fully fledged game with like a box and stuff. Um, And like, so I, I got into D and D pre red box, like the red box was out by the time that I played, but that's not the edition of D and D that I played. <laughs> <laughs> so like I, I played the magenta box and I actually have that box uh, because my uncle uh, has since given it to me um, and slight tangent off of that. Um, my, my uncle's black or at least that specific uncle black. So like a lot of people um, nowadays, or even like in the recent past, had the sort of uh gatekeepery idea that like well it's f- it's a game for white nerds and i'm like i'm a nerd but i'm not white and the the guy who got me into this is also not white so i don't know what the fuck you're talking about like nerds of color have been in uh rpgs from the beginning uh so like what um so a uh, long story slightly longer Uh, I, (laughs) my first character, uh, was a cleric. We went into a room, uh, in a dungeon and there were were Sturges in there. And I was like three or four. I had no idea what the hell a Sturge was. And I'm like, well, they're strange animals, right? I'm just going to observe them. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to see, see what's going on. I watched animal planet or whatever, uh, documentary series was around at the time. And I'm like, yeah, no, th- this is this is really cool. I just want to experience this world. And they're just, they fucking killed me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, awesome. And so I got hooked then uh, some 37 years ago. Uh, and from then, I've just been playing uh, D&D and other RPGs um, since then. Uh, I was vaguely aware of Scarred Land's uh, when it was based off of uh, third edition D anD I I don't think I ever played it, but uh, I I would lie to people and say that I played it uh, because I worked at a game shop, and that's what game shop employees do they they lie oh, yes. about what games they've played. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Everyone uh, is the best
4: game ever, right? Yeah, you, sh- like you should buy it. Like, uh, so like I I had made myself passingly familiar with it, uh, but I. I hadn't had um, sort of my teeth really into it uh, until a year or so ago when uh, Travis approached me uh, saying that he, he wanted uh, me to wor- work on the project and I, again, described it as d d but metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more that I looked into the setting, I'm like, yes, yes, it is. It is D&D, but metal. What we, we have unicorns in the setting, except the unicorns are chainsaws. Oh, <laughs> okay and and there are gods in this there are gods in this universe okay except some of the gods were evil and they were torn to pieces ah all right and and their blood has tainted everything, including one of the seas and the sea is just blood. Oh okay and because the sea is made out of blood uh the mermaids there are red and they they're powered by blood. fucking what? Uh, okay. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, this it, Heavy Metal magazine, the D&D setting.
0: It's it's a rare campaign setting where you can literally set an adventure at length in the comatose corpse of a titan. Uh, and because of well, whatever that titan represented in life, um, now that you're entering his uh, dismembered abdomen, Let's say it was a titan that manifested strongly feelings of greed, or you know, was responsible for greed or fear. Uh, as you uh, go deeper and deeper into this uh, titan's remains, the creatures there more and more manifest those feelings of greed or fear, and your characters start feeling those those uh, emotions as well because they have quite literally have infected the world with their remains. It's mm-hmm. um, it's bizarre, and... you know. On the surface, it's just bizarre, <laughs> but it's also so captivating. I think to people who who hear of Skuldancer, you know, as soon as you get that elevator pitch, I think pe- a lot of people just do want to know more, and that's um, well, I think that's a big selling point. Maybe that's why a lot of people seem to be getting into it right now.
4: Probably, and uh, for for the listeners, uh, what. Uh what Matthew just uh brought up about having um encounters and campaigns inside uh the bodies of Titans, that's that's not hyperbole. Like uh I I had a big uh fight inside the lungs of Mormo uh a couple months ago. Like this this isn't hypothetical. Like you can just do it. <laughs> So let's talk about uh,
0: role-playing in more general terms then, because uh, most of us, especially those of us who work in the RPG industry, end up finding our uh, horizons broadening somewhat from from D&D or whichever game first got us into the hobby. Or in, in Jessica's case, first put us off the hobby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so it's always a nice opportunity to explore some of the other games uh, which we're fond, or, or games we just don't get on with. you know sometimes there's things we don't gel with. Uh, Jessica, is there? do you have a go-to game and or a regular gaming group uh, with whom you play such a game?
3: Um, Yeah, I play a lot of Blue Rose still. Um, I play uh, occasionally 7th Sea. My cousin is a great GM. Um, Something that I haven't played in a really long time, but would absolutely love to, because it was what got me into role-playing games, um, was back when I had dial-up internet, Um, I did a lot of forum RPs with a Dragon Mm -hmm. Riders of Pern forum. Oh, nice. And that Ooh, was very,
0: very specific game. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of people will have heard of that, I think.
3: <laughs> it was what got me into role playing. And I haven't, I just haven't done that in a really long time. But that is like when you, when you mentioned like thinking fondly of role playing games, that was the first thing that came to mind. Cause that was the, I think the first thing I did.
0: Yeah. I think, I, you know what? I, I don't often go into it, but I think the first. I certainly I did lots of let's pretend in the playground at school and and ran Mm -hmm. through choose your adventure books with my friends but as a I guess thinking adult uh, the first role play I really did at length was on forums I used to on the old Black Isle forums the one of the developers of the Baldur's Mm -hmm. Gate uh, Mm -hmm. video games and we had uh, we would basically play freeform games where we took on the role of the gods from the forgotten realms during the time of troubles uh, and that was fun it was nonsense you know it was just people throwing <laughs> around ridiculous powers and destroying continents and little did we know that wizards of the coast would eventually do that themselves uh but, <laughs> but... i mean canonically
4: the time of troubles is a bunch of nonsense too <laughs> oh yeah yeah um, Oh, we could go into
0: it. I'm sure. Uh, but what, um, what about you, Hiromi? What, what other games really capture your imagination?
4: Oh, um, I'm kind of all over the place. I mean, um, if in terms of like hours gamed, uh, it's uh, almost certainly various flavors of D and D and Shadowrun at the top. But like, mm-hmm. um. I, I have so much fun with a lot of different uh, RPG systems, including like some ones that are uh, especially stripped down. Like uh, Fate Accelerated is a system that I particularly like, uh, even though like I I have no active um, designs at uh, pitching a project uh, at Evil Hat or trying to get on board with them. Uh, not because... It wouldn't be fun for me, but because I I have a full plate as it is, <laughs> um, I I especially like uh, Mage, uh, which is good because I've worked on Mage a lot. Uh, I especially like Zion, which is also good because I've worked on Sion a lot. <laughs> uh, like if if I didn't enjoy uh, those uh, settings and systems, I think I would have a miserable time doing my job. Um, But yeah, no. There's. I played a fair amount of Vampire uh, when I was a teen because I was a teen in the '90s, and that's what you did. Uh, If if you know you were a goth nerd, which which I am, so. Um, yeah, no. I. It's hard for me to, like, pinpoint any sort of specifics, just because there's so many good RPGs out there, Mm. uh, and they're they're loads of fun and i enjoy playing them and i enjoy writing for them uh there are also terrible rpgs and i i, I avoid them uh like actively but <laughs> there's
0: so so as a writer i'm, I'm assuming uh, this isn't a case of uh Hiromi wept for there were no more worlds to conquer what <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other dream RPGs you would like to work on, um, in particular?
4: Uh, I definitely like to work uh, on Shadowrun. I I understand that um, internally Catalyst is sometimes uh, a bit of a bear to work with. Uh, which I mean, that companies are companies. They're they're gonna do what they're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've I've loved cyberpunk for decades at this point at this point, which I mean, I guess cyberpunk hasn't been around for that many decades. So I guess I got in kind of on the ground floor or close to the ground floor, I suppose. Um, so like, I'd, I'd love to work on them. Uh, I'd love to work uh, on uh, cyberpunk. Uh, I've I'm probably, I'm probably much closer to working uh, on cyberpunk uh, than I am uh, Shadowrun shadow run because uh, I've, I've been talking with a uh, Arthouse Orion <laughs> for like uh, a year plus at this point. And it's just sort of a matter of uh, finding um, an opportunity that fits uh, both, both their goals and my schedule uh, not to. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> I,
3: that, that was a like, Nothing's
4: goals. NDA'd because it's not far enough for an nDA to exist, but if I write on something, it's probably going to be it's probably going to bring an Asian focus to the game that's that's what I'm gonna say
0: <laughs> well so well just before we leave that, um, do you find this is a question that I don't think we've ever asked on the podcast, but it's something I've certainly encountered off of it. That you, you say you, you often bring an Asian focus to a game. There mm-hmm. has been, there have certainly been cases where um, I guess not non uh, non-white Western Europeans or North Americans uh, to, to form a bracket there have been hired to work specifically because of their cultural background. Uh, or, you know, something Mm -hmm. they might bring to the table. And there's the, sometimes there's the feeling of pigeonholing as a result of that, you know, that you are being hired because that is what you bring. Uh, Mm. And and maybe this is a controversial subject to wade in on, but have you ever felt that? Uh, How how do you as a writer deal with that?
4: There have definitely been projects that I've been brought on because I'm Asian American, um, and they the creators were like, we we want to represent uh, uh Asia or Asian American characters or uh, historical or even alt history Asia uh, and they they wanted someone who both had uh, the lived experience as well as the uh, cultural knowledge and uh, learning for that. um and I don't think that someone has to be um, Asian to write about Asia, uh, but they do need to have the same sort of approach to uh, writing it that they would for something that they, that they do know about, which generally means doing a shit ton of reading. And mm. even though like, even though like I'm uh, 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 Japanese and Okinawan and I was uh, partially raised in uh, on Okinawa, uh, I still do a ton of reading because that you're, you're trying to represent like millions of people within uh, a few hundred words. And so like in order to do that justice, you, you can't just sort of uh, riff, you can't just sort of make shit up. You have to um, take a, a large concept and distill it into um something that's both true and accessible yeah um Uh, and in terms of like
0: yeah otherwise you're just playing with stereotypes essentially
4: right which is is fucking boring like not only is it boring uh to to write stereotypes because there's nothing interesting there but it's also boring if if you have no knowledge of the culture and you're working with stereotypes because it's like if you only have access to like this one thin uh, two-dimensional image of what a culture is, then like there's a whole richness that you're missing. And even if you don't know anything about the culture, you can feel that it it's uh cardboard that it's, it's just like a cutout of a mm. people. And in terms of like feeling pigeonholed, um I don't, I don't feel like, Uh, I'm limited or pigeonholed. Um, I, I feel that, uh, most writers have things that they excel at things that they're knowledgeable of things that they're good at. Like if, uh, someone was really good at writing system stuff, they're like, Hey, I know how to balance things mechanically. Uh, there's like a whole section. There's like a whole, like sub departments for people like that over at wizards of the coast, because they're big enough that they can do that. Yeah. Um, so like, it's not so much pigeonholing so much as it is just like, that's my strength. Uh, it's one of the things I'm good at. I'm also very good. At least I would, I like to think I'm very good at writing adventures that, uh, people find compelling. Uh, I, I also write a lot of, uh, uh, mysteries. Um, and, uh, do, do a lot of work at making things, uh, queerer and, uh, sort of breaking down, um, gender stereotypes and binaries. And like, these are all things that are important to me because they're, they're key. They're, they're like, uh, foundational to who I am. Like I, I'm a non-binary, uh, trans asian uh, islander uh uh uh, latin uh and and also swedish like i I have white uh, blood in me it's just i'm all over the place and like (laughs) these these things are all part of who i am and part of the strengths that i have at uh uh writing and creating these worlds so like as as long as um developers and editors and like whoever hires me uh sort of realizes that those are things that are uh my strengths my assets the things that i bring to the table as opposed to just hiring me because i'm asian then we're we're gonna get along just fine if people look at my name and go oh hiromi yeah they're asian they're hired and like that's as far as they think then i'll probably be annoyed with them (laughs)
0: Uh I wouldn't believe you, but that, that's a wonderful, in-depth answer, and I really am grateful for you to taking the time to go into that. Um, and uh, for in case any listeners don't know, Hiromi and I are working on uh, Tales of Depravity, which is a wonderful title for a book, for mm-hmm. They Came From Beyond the Grave. Um, and I've obviously been very familiar with your work uh, through Mage more than anything else. And uh, mm-hmm. I had a recommendation. I think it was from Eddie. Was I think it was from Eddie, saying that uh, your adventure skills were, you know, up there, which is why yeah, you are on as a co-developer on an adventure book. So looking forward oh, to the awesome. red lines on that one. Uh, but uh, Jessica, we've not forgotten you. Um, but uh, I take you back to the question of I suppose about five or six minutes ago. Uh, regarding dream projects, games you would like to work on, and, and, and let's, let's take it to encompass some of what we discussed after. Um, do you feel you have a particular strength as a writer, something that you really like to specialize in?
3: So I think my dream project would be uh, a TRPG that's not actually out yet. Um, uh, they're making a TRPG out of N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth series, and that is definitely top of my list because I love that series and I think that project is an awesome one.
4: I'm actually uh, on the team for that. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so you
0: two you two need to get together after this meeting and start exchanging emails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: so yeah, I would say that that's definitely my number one dream project. Um, other than that, there's actually a project that um i'm working on with a friend of mine that uh we i mean i can't say too much about it now it's still very early stages um but that will hopefully be out in the next year or two and that is so that's basically my answer is i'm working on my dream project already at least one of them Oh, nice well
0: that's that's all that's always a good place to be yeah um but you can't talk about it right now, when do you think people are going
3: to be able to hear about it? What a great question. I'm hoping to be able to dedicate a lot more time to it in the new year. Um, And so hopefully sometime in spring or summer, I'll have enough information that we can start announcing it and getting the word out a little bit.
0: Okay. Well, as we're getting to the close of our interview anyhow, let's uh, go over to social medias and things we would like to promote. Uh, So Jessica, if people do want to find out more about this project as of uh, spring, summer next year, where would they go to find out from you?
3: Um, I try to keep Twitter updated with the stuff that I'm working on. You can find me on Twitter at rightjessr, W-R-I-T-E-J-E-S-S-R. Um, and I have everything, for the most part, I try to keep my website updated, and that's rightjess.com.
4: Thank you very much.
0: And uh, how about you, Hiromi?
4: Uh, keep both uh, my website and my Twitter updated with uh, all all the good stuffs. Um, my Twitter handle is at Uh, Kota. uh My website is Uh You can also find, uh, at this point, I believe 12 uh short story anthologies where i appear and uh most of that is queer genre fiction uh on uh on amazon and probably other distribution chains i honestly don't know what the distribution uh of my books ends up being but uh you you can search for me by name uh i have an amazon author page that uh I would link but this is a podcast so i mean there's nothing for you to click so <laughs>
0: well Just... if you send if you send it to me Hiromi, i'll make sure it's in the show notes
4: oh awesome yeah uh then then i'll do that uh but yeah if if you like queer genre fiction like say you want to read about a uh a changeling who menaces uh, a police station entitled uh Fay do crimes uh, then you know you should you should read my stuff.
3: <laughs> uh, that sounds amazing. I definitely want to read that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and well, the last
0: question I often ask guests is: I, I know you've uh, you very much uh, recommended a well a a catchment of work, if you like. Um, if both of you have one project about which you're particularly proud, other than Dead Man's Rust, of course, which is on Kickstarter very very soon. Um, Jessica, if you wanted people to look at any one of your pieces of work, which one would you send them to?
3: Um, I think I would send them to the... Uh... Oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the the entire adventure path, but I worked on a couple of issues of a Starfinder adventure path um, called Something Conspiracy. I wish I could remember it better, and I got to write a bunch of like aliens and... A planet and i would send people to that because i had so much fun working on that
0: oh well if you if you can uh, find out after we uh, go off the air you can send it to me and i will make sure that's in the show notes too and uh, and haromi uh, is there a one particular product
4: you'd love people to look at or, or um anthology um I really like a lot of the stuff that I've done, but since I, I mentioned BFA do crimes uh, and I it's, it's my favorite, my favorite of it's, well, it's my second favorite of all of the things uh, in the anthology series. Uh, but the one that's most accessible and fun, uh, you can find that in the Trinity anthology uh, may edition. Uh, note this Trinity anthology has nothing to do with the RPG line. Trinity, <laughs> which I've also worked (laughs) on.
0: Thank you very much, both of you, for being guests. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, we will now throw back to Eddie, who is currently trapped in a mimic, and Dixie, who is currently trapped in a haunted tree. So thank you very much, Hiromi and Jessica. And we're back, and my co hosts are still safely ensconced in their little sanctuaries. Let's open up the mimic first of all.
2: Oh, wow. This is Ed- Eddie. I... Did you eat the mimic? Uh, uh, no. Um, we came to a certain kind of impasse. Um, they wouldn't devour me, and I would just be kind of covered in slime, which I own a boxer now, so I'm kind of used to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, pretty much your average day, really. Did you get any work done while you were in there?
2: Um, No, but I got a lot of thinking done, which, you know, so it's nice to have a a moment to kind of reflect and think how moist you are.
0: And mimic, too. And let's go uh, out to the garden and see whether Dixie has uh, safely uh, emerged from the tree. Dixie, you out there?
1: Yeah, I'm here, I'm here.
0: Okay. I, you, you, yeah. You look changed. Yeah, you look changed somehow. More dark. Yeah.
1: Than. Um. Yeah. I made some friends down there. Uh, oh. Some ghoul friends. Um, oh, very
0: good. Yeah,
1: and cool. and and now and now I am one of them.
0: Get back in the tree.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> well. Oh, she's a ghoul now. Oh no, her aesthetic is monochromatic and she's pale. Oh no, how can we ever tell the difference? <laughs> Well, now I now I eat flesh.
3: <laughs> well, <it's> pretty... <laughs>
2: Who doesn't, really? It's 2020. <laughs> D- D- Dixie version 1 wasn't covered in sap.
1: That is correct. You don't her. know that. You're not near me.
0: <laughs> well, not, not at the conventions that we have mutually attended, but then again, maybe you just, I guess, scraped the sap off before you uh, come to the hotel. I don't know. I wouldn't like to guess or make assumptions. Good. Okay, so the interview is done. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I do hope you found it entertaining. And yeah, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Scarred Lands, Dead Man's Rust is on Kickstarter. We are aiming to launch it as of time of recording next Monday, uh, barring anything unforeseen. Uh, hopefully, you should see it up there then. We'd really like, unless to- the
1: episode gets released next week instead of this week, like we're thinking. <laughs> In which case, it's already up. Hopefully, we don't know.
0: Well, thank you for covering my back there, Dixie. That could have been very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, what I would really be interested to hear or see, I should say, is people who listen to this podcast, I know you sometimes leave comments on apps like Podbean and wherever you should find this good podcast, uh, whether it's the blog or on our Onyx Path Discord what I'm always interested in when it comes to Scarred Lands isn't necessarily how people use the Scarred land settings straight, but with the elements they pull from it to put in their other D&D games. Uh, it's something I often do with Scarred Lands with the creature collection because I'm a big fan of the monsters presented in Scarred Lands uh, in, um, in the way that they have a... In a fashion they surprise players, because players who play d d often get used to the goblins, hobgoblins, orcs, trolls, and ogres, but they aren't necessarily expecting some of the weird and depraved creatures in Scarred Lands, so I like to sort of throw Scarred Lands monsters at them, or introduce massive seas made entirely of blood, just because they're not expecting it. And let's be honest, it wouldn't as a general rule, fit in in Faerun unless something unusual has happened to do with the plot. So I would love it if you're listening to this for you to put something on one of the places where we hang out, just to tell us what, how you have used Scarred Lands in your D&D games, or even better, in non-D&D games. Let's see how creative you can be.
2: <laughs> Realm's is really weird.
0: <laughs> I mean... They're
1: compatible.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Technically. Yeah. I, in, in a way, I would say that there's some, some Scarred Lands creatures would fit into Pugmire better than the average D&D monster, just because there's so much that's environmental and from distant civilizations that no one living can recall. So true, true. there's something incredibly alien about a lot of these Scarred Lands beasts. So oh, yeah. I have ideas. Mm. Uh you know, do, oh, do no. you not open that sealed bunker and find out what's in it? Probably not. But there could be the trace of man <laughs> in there. There could be a trace of something a lot worse. So Eddie, if people want to go online and find you, where would they go?
2: Uh you could find me at uh, pugsteady.com and from there you get access to all of my social media accounts.
0: And how about you, Dixie?
1: Uh you can find me in the haunted tree um or <laughs> i guess if you'll find me online at Dixie cyanide on most social media dixiecochran.com but really the haunted tree is where it's at
0: HauntedTree.com. yeah i think the haunted yeah, now uh, could one of you look and see whether the haunted tree.com exists i think dixie's doing that right now um because it would be an excellent domain name yeah honestly it really would yeah uh, and if not uh, the no, nobody,
1: nobody owns thehauntedtree.com. Well, well, right now,
0: it's stock is going up, so buy it.
1: <laughs> and you can find me on
0: matthewdorkins.com. That's where you can find all my links to my various social media hangouts. And above all, thank you very much for listening. Do check us out on social media and do give this Kickstarter a look. Thank you very much. And many worlds, one path cast.